Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting June 3, 2016, we speak with New York and Nairobi-based attorney and journalist Jill Filipovich about her article in the WPJ Spring 2016 issue, The Unintended Consequences of India's War on Sex Selection. We'll also point out other top features in the new spring issue. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. Young men and women in Mumbai last year campaigned to save the girl child in line with Indian legislation criminalizing abortion for sex selection. That law was meant to reverse the growing gender gap in a nation whose dominant culture values male offspring far above the female. Penalizing sex selection was initially seen as a triumph by women's rights groups, but after more than 20 years it has not only failed to dramatically narrow the gender gap, but also has undermined greater access to abortion generally, frustrating another key aim of the women's movement and the government. The Unintended Consequences of India's War on Sex Selection is the headline on a featured article in the spring 2016 issue of World Policy Journal. It was written by New York and Nairobi-based attorney and journalist Jill Filipovich, who was an international reporting project fellow in India last year. And we discussed the story recently for this podcast. Jill Filipovich, welcome to World Policy on Air. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Start by reminding us why male children are so preferred by Indian tradition, the economic and social factors. Sure. So one thing that I think is important to keep in mind when we're talking about um, sex selection and skewed sex ratios is that people aren't making these choices just because, you know, they hate women and girls. They're doing it because there are a series of economic and social incentives. So in Indian families, um, and this is not universally true, but it's true in many families, Um, When a child gets married, if that child is a daughter, she goes and lives with her husband. The family has to spend much of her life raising a dowry to send her with. So she's essentially a cash drain. Um, So she leaves, she goes and lives with her husband and and her husband's family. If you have a son, though, whoever he marries comes and lives with you. So you not only get to keep your son in your house, um, your son also probably works outside the home and is then financially supporting the whole family, but you also get a daughter-in-law and the services that she brings. Um, Without having that, without having a son, parents, and especially uh, women, grandparents, mothers, um, often end up bereft, and they end up with no source of economic support into their old age. Um, And so families, understandably, want to have sons so they can continue to support themselves as they grow old. How was the gender gap maintained before prenatal testing for gender determination? You mentioned both conscious and unconscious mistreatment of girl children, even infanticide. So, you know, a hundred years ago, um, there are already reports of female infanticide in India. Um, So infant girls were simply left out um, to die. There have also been reports, and this still continues to happen today, of female children just simply not getting the same amount of nourishment and uh, care 
as their male counterparts. So girls won't be fed as much. They won't be fed as nutritious food. Um, their parents will be less careful to take them in to get vaccinated. Um, all of that leads to a situation where India and China are actually, I believe, the only two countries in the world um, where girls are more likely to die under the age of five than boys. From all of this, how great had the gender gap grown when the anti-sex selection law was first passed? So what we know, um, I have some stats in the World Policy article that I published with you guys, um, that in 2001, which, at which point the law had been in effect in one incarnation for a while, um, there were 927 girls for every 1,000 boys. Um, so 10 years after that, by 2011, which is the most recent year for, from which uh, census data is available, there were 919 girls under the age of seven for every 1,000 boys. Um, so you've seen fewer girls. And the sex ratio for children, for, so the sex ratio in India worsened in 18 states, um, which means it got better in only 10. And this is despite the fact that this Indian sex selection law has been in effect for 10 years. And besides the unfairness to the females never born, you remind us of the serious social problems created for many of the males who are when no wives are available later. Right. So when you have a, a lack of women um, to marry the men in a society, um, you end up with a whole series of problems. Those things can include human trafficking to bring in wives from other countries. Um, they can include susceptibility to extremist groups. Um, including terrorist groups, uh, and they can include an uptick in violence. Um, I mean, this can be a little bit strange or hard to understand from a U.S. perspective where it's pretty acceptable to be an unmarried adult. Um, you know, and in big cities, you know, Mumbai, Delhi, that might be more acceptable to not be married. Um, but especially in smaller cities, in more rural areas, in more traditional areas, it's completely socially unacceptable to, not, to be an adult man and not have a wife or to be an adult woman and not have a husband. And so if men aren't able to marry, they end up seeking out purpose and community elsewhere, um, often in pretty antisocial places. Now tell us how the law against abortion for sex selection has affected access to abortion generally, especially in the second trimester when many women first realize or finally admit that they're pregnant, uh, but also when illegal sonograms can determine fetal gender. How do doctors decide to provide or not to provide the service? Well, one thing that I, I was very surprised at in my reporting in India um, was just how constrained access to second trimester abortions has become as a result of this law. So abortion is generally legal in India. Um, and it's typically legal through the second trimester. Um, doctors, though, were telling me that because they had heard about doctor, other doctors getting arrested, because they were worried about this law, they were concerned that women would go often to uh, Dubai or a country in the Gulf um, or even to a doctor in India who they were you know, paying to perform this illegal procedure and give them a sonogram so that they would know the sex of their fetus and then would come in and request a second trimester abortion. And so those doctors, many of them essentially said, I won't do second trimester abortions anymore. Um, I won't do them unless there is a clear threat to the pregnant woman's health or life. Um, 
but if, you know, if it's mostly an elective procedure, um, then I'll tell her no. And, and I had one doctor even say, I'll, I will give her an abortion, but only if she also agrees to be sterilized. So only she agrees that she'll never have any more children. Um, you know, this is a pretty significant issue in a country where you have very high rates of illiteracy, um, where you have high rates of uh, child and adolescent marriage, um, where getting pregnant outside of marriage is heavily stigmatized. Um, so you have situations where especially young teenage girls, adolescent girls, will get pregnant. And essentially, you know, they've had no sex yet. They don't know what pregnancy looks like or feels like. Um, they certainly know they aren't supposed to be getting pregnant. And so many of them are either in a state of ignorance or denial and don't realize they're pregnant until much later. And if they're then refused an abortion, you know, that, that is huge social consequences for them. You note there's a difference between public versus private hospitals on this matter. You know, I primarily spoke with doctors at public hospitals. Um, anecdotally, from what they were telling me, yes, often doctors at private hospitals, for a cost, will perform second trimester abortions, and frankly, will perform sex selective abortions. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, you know, those procedures do end up being fairly costly, which is why you see the biggest uh, sex ratio gaps. Um, in sort of the growing middle class. You don't see it as much among women who live in the slums um, who live in, or who live in very poor rural areas because they typically can't afford to pay a private doctor um, to perform this procedure illegally. Uh, how do abortion drugs that can be taken at home play into all this? So there does seem to be increasing access really everywhere in the world um, to misoprostol, which is a drug that induces abortion. Um, you know, India is trying to create a safer abortion access. India, despite abortion being legal, has pretty disturbingly high rates of unsafe abortion, often because women are inducing the procedures themselves. Um, so the Indian government is now training certified nurse midwives uh, to go into especially rural communities and for women who need it, uh, distribute misoprostol, which is an abortion-inducing drug. Um, misoprostol typically can only be, or the WHO recommends, it's only used in the first 13 weeks of pregnancy. Um, so that's going to be before a woman can go get, typically before a woman can go get a sonogram and determine the sex of her fetus. Um, so I, I think from the Indian government's perspective, um, increasing access to misoprostol would be one tool uh, to give women safe abortion access early um, in the first trimester without having to deal with these questions about sex selection. Um, because the point at which you can safely use misoprostol, sex selection isn't quite a question yet. But you know the sort of irony uh, to the degree that penalizing abortion for sex selection has added to the moral stigma of abortion, uh, the all lives matter argument. Uh, even as the government tries to normalize it to combat uh, Indian overpopulation. Right. So uh, big, India, unlike the U.S., doesn't have um, a powerful, vocal, uh, pro-life movement. Um, of course, every country has some anti-abortion contingent. Um, but in India, the legality of abortion generally isn't something that is really up for debate. Um, sex selection, obviously, is something that has been up for debate um, and that has been outlawed. Um, 
But at this point, you know, India is focusing quite heavily on its development, on the health of its population, um, and frankly also how they keep that population at a manageable size. Um, and so safe abortion is certainly a part of that. Unfortunately, with the emphasis on sexual sex selection, both from the Indian government, um, which has run a series of pretty disturbing anti-sex selection ads, you know, a, a picture of a baby with scissors coming toward it, that kind of stuff. Um, that has contributed to a general idea that abortion is wrong, and often in India's lower income and less literate populations that abortion is in fact illegal. And so you get a lot of women that, because of the anti-sex selection ads and the focus on that, um, have concluded that this procedure itself, uh, abortion generally, is something that the Indian government disapproves of, which is contributing from sort of, again, from my anecdotal observation, seems to be contributing um, to some of India's ongoing maternal health challenges. And another irony uh, is that to the degree the government campaign for smaller families has succeeded, it tends to increase the pressure for sex selection one way or another. Exactly. So one thing that researchers have found that's pretty striking is that sex selection is not, not particularly common or not as common in a first birth. So families are kind of happy to you know, have their first child and see what happens. But if that first child is a girl, then the chances of have, uh, relying on sex selection for the second child go up pretty significantly. Um, so many people that I spoke with in India use this line that the government has been touting, um, which is a, a small family is a happy family. And most people said that the ideal number of children for them would be two. And most people said they wanted a girl and a boy. Um, so the Indian government has kind of created this idyllic vision of what, you know, the, the Indian family looks like. Um, and so families, when they have a girl first, are now seem to be taking steps to make sure that that second child is a boy. And you see this with subsequent children. If a family has two girls, the chances of sex selection for the third get even higher, and, and so on. What's the punishment for doctors who perform illegal abortions uh, because of sex selection? And to what degree do those penalties present a conflict, a, another conflict for a country uh, with medical professionals in, in relatively short supply? Right. So as I understand it, and I'm not, I'm not an expert in Indian law, um, but the penalties do seem to, to vary in different parts of the state, in, in different states. Um, Doctors, though, have been arrested. There have been high-profile cases of doctors who are allegedly performing sex-selective abortions, um, you know, being arrested in stings, uh, the government, and also some NGO groups. And these are women's rights NGO groups. Um, attempting, you know, sending people into doctor's offices and asking for sonograms or sex-selective abortions um, in these kind of sting raid operations, getting doctors in trouble that way. Um, you know, I think what they would say is that this is a good way to weed out unscrupulous providers who are breaking the law and contributing to India's sex selection problem. Um, and, you know, the sex ratio in, in India is a serious problem. I don't think anybody disagrees with that. Um, you know, on the other hand, as you said, there aren't enough doctors in India to go around. And particularly in the public sector, um, there aren't enough doctors in rural hospitals, especially doctors who are trained to perform abortions. Um, 
which is why the Indian government is now relying increasingly heavy, heavily on certified nurse midwives. Um, you know, there often aren't even enough, enough doctors in the big cities. I mean, I think we've seen this in news reports. Whenever there's a major public health crisis in a place like Delhi, you know, you have people essentially dying on hospital floors because there just aren't enough beds and there aren't enough medical providers and there aren't enough resources. And so the idea of taking some of those providers out of their jobs, out of the population that they serve, um, because they've performed abortions that, you know, women are often coming in and begging them for, um, it does pose some conflicts and some issues that I don't know that Indian law enforcement has kind of fully uh, fleshed out yet. I was fascinated by the degree to which pregnant women get the most shame and blame for abortion in a culture that gives them the least control over sex, pregnancy, or abortion. Who are the key deciders? Most of the women who I talked to, and again, I, I was focusing very much on women in poor, urban, and rural communities, um, and some in kind of the lower middle class. Um, so this is less applicable to the sort of educated and wealthier classes. But within the uh, groups of women that I was talking to, what they told me was that, you know, they have very little say over when they have sex, who they have sex with, um, you know, at what age they start having sex, when they get married, who they get married to, um, and certainly about any reproductive health decisions, whether they are sterilized, whether they go on birth control, um, whether they have a child and when, whether they have an abortion and when. Um, it's largely sort of a whole family decision, but, you know, primarily their mother-in-law and their husband. Uh, these are kind of the two key actors who are getting to decide the makeup of the third generation of the family who lives in this shared family home. Um, but, of course, it is still the women themselves, the ones who are bearing the children or not, uh, who kind of end up getting blamed both locally and also by society at large for having too many children or not having enough children or having children of the wrong gender, you know, or making the wrong decisions. Um, they end up shouldering kind of the burden of the blame and the stigma. And certainly, you know, their bodies themselves are the bodies that are having to undergo these procedures and live out these choices. Um, even though they have a, a fairly limited role in actually making the decision. Given conflicting priorities on abortion in general versus abortion for sex selection, how are women's rights groups dealing with both issues now? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a big challenge, I think, for many of them. Um, you know, there have been discussions and conferences about how do we say as women's rights organizations, uh, human rights organizations, that, yes, we believe that women should have full control over their reproductive lives, um, that we shouldn't stigmatize the choice to end a pregnancy, uh, and that we should trust women to make their own decisions about their bodies. Can we say that? And then can we also say, except when it comes to the sex of your fetus? Um, there's a real tension there. And one of the things that was more interesting to me in reporting this story is that no one has figured out how to resolve it. Um, you know, I, I know I talked earlier about sort of the problems that sex selection uh, has created for abortion access, you know, but I think it's very hard for women's rights groups in India within that context to say, well, we shouldn't send a message that sex selection is wrong. Um, you know, you have a society where women are often treated as second-class citizens, um, where, you know, it was perhaps not acceptable, but certainly 
common to decide you just weren't going to have girl children at all. Um, yeah, I understand that you can't, as a society, accept that, right? You can't say it's, it's okay uh, to not just privilege men in the society, but to say that you don't even want these girls to exist in the first place. Um, and so it has been a real challenge to reconcile that need to have girl children, to say female babies are, are valuable and we shouldn't, you know, be uh, terminating pregnancies with female fetuses just because we think that they're not. Um, you know, but I don't know how you say that and you also say we trust women to make all of their own reproductive choices. Um, those two things can't coexist. And that, I think, has been a real sticking point for feminist groups in India uh, and even outside of it in, in other countries that face similar challenges. So what are the best current government and NGO approaches to fighting sex selection while making abortion a safe part of necessary population control, necessary for the country and for individual families? It's a good question. Um, I don't know that anyone, any countries that face sex selection problems have totally figured this out yet. Um, I also don't know that I'm the best person to evaluate what's best. Um, you know, I would say, I think if you look at, there's a group called IPAS, uh, which they were kind enough to let me interview them and kind of follow them around a bit when I was in India. Um, they're a reproductive rights group, an abortion rights group. And one thing that they have been focusing on um, is sort of this whole society valuing of women. So they train abortion providers. Um, but they don't just train them in the service of providing abortion. They also train them in this uh, human rights kind of feminist-minded framework for abortion care. Um, and that's really important that, you know, they're not saying abortion is just a medical procedure. They're saying, you know, abortion is one point of contact between a physician and a woman who may be vulnerable in a lot of other ways. And so here are these kind of inroads that you as a doctor can use um, to help her feel confident in her decision, to make sure it is her decision, uh, and to approach this from an angle that says, you know, women, women matter. And the physician is a person who is, you know, pretty revered and respected in society. Um, you're in a very good position to send the message to that woman and her whole family um, that she's a valuable player here. So, and I think that's kind of one, one path uh, to increase the status of women in society generally. Um, you know, there are NGOs, and I didn't work with any of them in India, but they certainly exist, um, that are helping to elevate the status of girls. So helping to get girls into school, um, helping to increase educational attainment. That obviously is very important. Um, you know, it also, one thing that's sort of maybe not to be expected about sex selection, but educated families in the growing middle class actually tend to sex select more. So there isn't a correlation between education and a decrease in sex selection. In fact, it's been the opposite. Um, you know, and then there are also groups that are essentially trying to give resources uh, to families and increase development aid um, to make sure that families don't have to be wholly dependent on their sons. Um, you know, again, I think those efforts have been mixed. Um, and I think a lot of feminist groups would tell you, including American feminist groups that are familiar with an Indian context, um, that the laws against sex selection in the context of India are necessary and they're important to send a strong message about the value of women and girls. Jill Filipovich, thank you. 
Thank you so much for having me. Jill Filipovich is a New York and Nairobi-based attorney and journalist and an international reporting project fellow in India last year. Her article for the spring 2016 issue of World Policy Journal is The Unintended Consequences of India's War on Sex Selection. Also featured in the WPJ Spring issue, Black Lives Matter Everywhere, you'll find articles about black power in the French Banlieues, about race and revolution in Cuba, and about building black solidarity across national borders. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on the challenge of public sector corruption after the Panama Papers scandals. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>